junior church. If you are going to junior church, Captain Nikki is right there. <laughs> Go with her. But I've got to tell you, you're missing out. I've got, got a good sermon today. Yeah, that's right. We're in our sermon series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. And uh, today, uh, two weeks ago, I should say, we, we did the prophet Moses. Then last week, we did the priest, his brother Aaron. And so today, we're going to do the first king over the nation of Israel, uh, a guy called Saul. Uh, Saul is an, a really interesting character when you, when you start reading through his life and what he did. Um, he, looks lo- he makes a Game of Thrones character seem a well-measured individual. Okay? Saul is... Uh, a nut job. There is, there's no other way of saying it. He is bonkers crazy. Uh, and so we're going to go a little bit through his life. Uh, and, and what I find interesting about Scripture is a lot of times uh, we look at heroes in Scripture. Maybe you do this with David. Maybe you do this with some of the prophets. Um, and, and we look at them and we sort of imagine those, those heroes of Scripture to be... Uh, sort of a, a measurement for our own lives. Man, I'm not as good as David. Look, look at him. He was doing all this stuff. He was writing Psalms. I can barely write a Facebook post without making any mistakes. But look at David. He's over there. And, and we sort of, we, we, we contrast ourselves to these, these biblical characters because they seem larger than life. Um, that's not actually what they're in Scripture for. Uh, most of these people in Scripture are there uh, to show you how God uses anyone and especially uses the people who, who he knew was going to fail him. Uh, God knows everything, which means he knew what Saul was going to do with his life before he was even anointed king. And it was there uh, to show us that there is no person in Scripture that we should emulate other than Jesus. That Jesus was the perfect person in every single, single thing that he did um, You've got to think of Jesus as the Mary Poppins of Scripture, perfect in every single way. And so we look at the life of Saul, not to say, man, we should emulate that life, but maybe that we can draw lessons on uh, how we should behave in, in, in certain situations. So uh, to be real honest with you, there's actually three different accounts of Saul's rise to the throne uh, in three different chapters of Scriptures. We looked at one. Um, the basics of it is... Uh, uh, is that the people of Israel started grumbling and complaining. Uh, and, and if you've been in this sermon series in the last three weeks, you know that's completely unlike the character of the people of Israel. See, I got one laugh from Bart, the rest of you are asleep. All right, so throughout the three weeks, the nation of Israel has done nothing but grumble and complain. It's kind of what they do. It's their MO, if you will. Uh, and so uh, we look at this story, and, and, and what happens is the, the nation gathers around Samuel, who's the, the prophet of God, and they say, hey, look, uh, we need a king. We need to be like all these other people who are above us. We need, look, look they, they've got a king, and they've got a king, and, and poor Samuel sitting in the corner going, yeah, but you've got a, a God who appears in your midst. Why would you want a king? No, 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 we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. And so Samuel goes out, and he anoints uh, Saul as king uh, in, in one of the stories uh, Saul is sent out to look uh, for his father's straight donkey. He leaves his home, and some, some adventures happen, and eventually he gets anointed king. That's one of the stories. Uh, the third story is that he went off to war, and he actually uh, avenged 
um, a city who had been conquered. Uh, and so uh, uh, the people then lifted him up and, and proclaimed him king. Something that every single narrative has in common is it describes Saul as being a head above the rest. If you ever wanted to know where that expression came from, it came from Saul, who was literally taller than everyone else. So everyone looked at him and said, man, he could be a good king. Look, he's, he's literally a, uh, a head taller than everyone else around him. He's, he must be able to see real good. You think I'm making that up? That's actually in Scripture. They looked at Saul and they said, man, you look good. And here's the first lesson that I think we can get from the, the life of Saul. Not everything that looks good is good. Not everything that looks attractive is going to be beneficial for your life. Not everything that looks like it's meant to be is actually in the will of God. And a lot of people, they make this mistake when it comes to church. Uh, uh, one of the greatest mistakes in churches is uh, numerical growth in a church. They say, hey, look, every single seat is filled. That looks really good. We must be doing a good job. Uh, the amount of people in the seats has nothing to do with the person's soul or their spirit or their spiritual walk. You cannot tell a person's spiritual growth uh, just by looking at them. And so what we do in the church, and, and the church is very uh, particular about this, that they, they make sure everything is shiny and polished and looking good. It doesn't matter if underneath it it's rotted and, and no good. In fact, Jesus addressed this in the New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees were living a splendid life on the outside. They were doing everything they were supposed to. They were tithing. They were going to church. They were singing out of the Red Songbook. Everything was perfect for the Pharisees. And Jesus looked at them and said, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look all pretty. But on the inside, there's something dead, disgusting, and rotting. And, and so what the people of Israel did is they looked at Saul and they said, man, he looks good. He's, he's an attractive man. He's a good-looking guy. Um, he's the Fabio of ancient Israel, if you will. And so we're going to make him king. We're going we're gonna to elevate him. And God says, all right, this is not going to end well for you, but all right. Saul was the son of a guy called Kish. I got nothing on that other than I wanted to use the word Kish in a sermon. It's a funny word. Okay, some of you guys seem to be asleep, but that's okay. Uh, Saul had a few sons. Jonathan, which is my name. I was named for this kid. Uh, Abinadab. I'm not even going to pronounce that one. And Ishbosh. These are some funny names, yes? Name Jonathan means gift of God. It was his firstborn and the person who uh, had everything gone the way it was supposed to, was supposed to in inherit the kingdom of Israel. And so Saul becomes king. And like so many of the, the heroes in Scripture, the first few uh, accounts of his life, he's doing good. He's doing what God tells him to do. God says, go and, and remove these people from the land and keep it holy. He does it. Everything's going along. But, but as you watch his life, uh, you see the crazy train really starting to derail. Like his life really goes off the tracks pretty quickly. Um, and I know a lot of you are saying, well, if his life's going off the tra tracks, why are you preaching about his life? We'll get there. Paul's rejection in Scripture is one of the harshest that we'll actually see. And so we're just going to take a couple of minutes and go through this. During Saul's campaign against the Philistines, Samuel said that he would arrive in seven days to perform the requisite rites. When the people of Israel went to war, they wanted God to be on their side. Here's a lesson for you. If you go to a war, make sure God's on your side. Now, I'm not talking about a physical war. I'm not talking about deployment in an overseas conflict. I mean the war that you're living in every day. Uh, 
the Bible says that our struggle or our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places found in the book of Ephesians. If you're a Christian, it means that you're living your life under siege. You're in a war, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you're in a war. And one of the lessons that we can pull from the life of Saul is don't go into battle without the blessing of God. Don't go into a war without the Holy Spirit right there with you, giving you the power and strength to actually move forward. Because I can guarantee that if you don't, you're going to get slaughtered on the battlefield. And so Saul here, uh, he's going to go against the Philistines. He's doing what God told him to do. God said, go out, kick out the Philistines, everything's going to be good. So he's doing what God tells him, tells him to do. And, and, and Samuel says, don't worry, I'm going to come in seven days. Seven is a holy number. It's a number of completion and perfection. So Samuel says, hey, in seven days I'm going to be there. And Saul waits. Day one, all right, we're waiting. Day two, oh, we're still waiting. Day three, why isn't he here yet? Day four, he doesn't write, he doesn't call. What's going on? Day five, I don't know what's going on. Day six, all right, if he's not here at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, we're going. Day seven hits, and what actually happens is Saul then uh, uh, starts to offer the sacrifice himself, which he's not allowed to do. The sacrifice has to come from the prophet of God. And as Saul is finishing the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and says, why couldn't you just be patient? Why couldn't you just wait? Life lesson from Saul. Sometimes God is going to make you wait on an answer. Sometimes God is going to make you wait until his time, his seven days of perfection, however long that is for you, and that is sometimes the most frustrating thing for a Christian to go through. The fact that sometimes we just have to wait. It says in Scripture that he was given no word for an entire week. Can you, can you imagine what Saul's going through? He's sitting on the eve of battle. He's got all his army, all his troops, all the preparations have been made. He's ready to go. He knows that uh, as a king, he's going to lose men. There are people under his care who are going to die for this. But it's, it's, he's, it's the right thing to do because God commanded it. He, I'm going in the strength of the Lord. I'm doing what God told me to do. But then there is no word. And sometimes we live in a world where the word goes silent for an ordained period of time. And so this is the first reprimand of Samuel against Saul for not obeying his instructions and the instructions uh, of the war. Now, several years after Saul's victory against the Philistines, uh, Samuel instructs Saul to make war on the Amicalites and to utterly destroy them in fulfillment of a mandate set out. So basically what happens is Samuel gets a word from the Lord. This is what prophets do. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that prophets hear the voice of the Lord and then relay that to whoever God told them to, to talk to. Uh, and so Samuel comes to, to Saul and says, look, God wants you to do this war. He wants you to utterly destroy them. He says that they're a bad people. They're a corrupt people. They're doing wicked things, and God wants them, their influence removed from the nation of Israel. Go out and destroy them. And what Scripture says, um, 
uh, sorry, I've got a reference in here. These are, these are the Amalekites that uh, actually Joshua was supposed to destroy and he didn't finish off the job. Uh, found in Deuteronomy 24, uh, 25, 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under, from under heaven, you shall not forget. And so these guys have been a bad bunch of people for a long period of time. And the word comes from Samuel, you're going to go in there and you're going to, to kill uh, everyone. You're going to, to, to wipe them out. And Saul starts off really good. He goes in and he kills all the men, women, children, poor quality livestock, but leaves the king and the best livestock alive. Here's something else that we do as Christians. God gives us a commandment and we think that we know better than him. God gives us a command. He says, I want you to do this. And oftentimes what we do as Christians is say, but God... Why can't we just do it this way? Why can't we just do this? Why can't we just, and slowly, slowly, by making these little adjustments, we're moving ourselves outside from the will of God. And so what what Saul does is he says, you know what, I'm going to do most of what God told me to do. He's told me to go in and and kill all these people, and I'm going to do it, except I'm going to leave alive the best livestock. And he did it. He actually gave the, the best excuse in a couple of scriptures after this. He said, I did it so I could sacrifice the best livestock to the Lord. No, that's not what God said to do. God didn't say, go in, kill everything except the bad, best livestock and then offer that as an offering to me. It's not what God said. He said, go in and get rid of them. They're an evil influence. Now, a lot of people are going to balk because it says they Saul kills all the men, women, children, uh, and a lot of people, oh, it like, sounds a little bit like genocide to me. What you need to know about these guys uh, is that this, these people actually practice child sacrifices. This is one of the people that worshipped the, ab- uh, the abominable god Molech, uh, and the way he was worshipped was they took a six-month-year-old child uh, and they put him into a, a, a fire, and they let the, the child scream and burn to death. So, so when God said, these people are, are bad people, you need to go in and destroy them, uh, it was because he, God didn't want the influence of those pagans on the people of Israel. Now, what happens in uh, actually just a few chapters, we're, we're in 1 Samuel for, for most of this story, but what happens then in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which are two books that tell the same story just from different points of view, uh, uh, Solomon is actually corrupted by foreign wives, including a wife who was left alive from the Amalekites. And Solomon was corrupted by her pagan rituals. And paganism and the the idolatry of these people seeped into the nation of Israel, and as a result, the nation of Israel were taken away into captivity. So so a lot of times we look at this from an outside perspective. We don't understand that God is playing a historical narrative. Samuel learns that Saul has not obeyed the instructions in full. He informs Saul that God has rejected him as king due to his disobedience. He said, look, God doesn't, over and over and over again, you're not doing what God wants and there's going to be consequences for your actions. This is another thing in the Christian church that we need to learn. Uh, Yes, God forgives us of our sins, but yes, there is going to be consequences for our actions. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I walk up to a person and I slap them across the face God is going to forgive me of that sin. But it doesn't mean that there are not going to be consequences for me slapping someone across the face. Right? They could press charges for assault. I could go to jail. Yes? 
And so, so often what we do in, in the Christian church is we, we tie these two things together. We say, yes, God has forgiven us our sins, and now you don't have to worry about anything anymore. No, there are still consequences for your actions. Uh, when we're dealing with kids at camp, we, we say this all the time. When they, when they misbehave, we say, you've been forgiven for the misbehavior. Don't do it again, but there are going to be consequences for your actions. We, we expect it of kids, but for some reason we don't expect it of, of adults in the church. Here's what's really interesting about this. As Samuel turns to go, Saul seizes the hem of his, his robe and, and holds on so tight that he actually rips the bottom of, of the robe of Samuel. And, and Samuel turns around and what I can imagine, I don't know if he's prophesying at this, uh, uh, in, in this particular, those particular words. Um, if that was like a word, like God just like came inside of him, and I don't know how it worked, but, but Samuel turns around and says, just like you tore my robe, that's what the kingdom of Israel is going to be like under your descendants. And walks away. Like that's a mic drop. Okay, that's, and, and then, then Samuel then p- uh, picks up the king's sword and goes and kills the Amicalite king, which uh, Saul was supposed to do himself. And then Samuel and Saul never see each other again after this point. Now, what you have to understand is that's incredibly interesting because as king of Israel, Saul had a responsibility under the law to seek out the prophet whenever a major decision came up, which by intonation tells us that Saul never sought the face of the Lord in the rest of his life. He decided on every decision by himself. And you can see what happens throughout the nation of Israel. You, you can see what happens when, uh, when we get to the story of Saul and David later on in the scripture. Now, you know the story. If you've ever been to church, you've ever sat through a Sunday school lesson, you've heard David and Goliath, right? I, I don't need to explain this story to you. Good, because in a couple of weeks, we're going to go through that as well. But Saul, you can see every single occurrence... Throughout the rest of his time in Scripture, he gets more and more unstable. Uh, uh, there's a story, David is there, he's playing the harp, and at one point it says that a, a spirit of descent comes upon uh, uh, Saul of, of uh, depression, of anxiety, of fear, and he picks up his spear and he hurls it at David's head. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't like harp music. I rate it just a little bit below brass band music. But I've never thrown a spear at someone because I don't like the music, right? Have, have you ever done that? Have you ever, if you're a gun-carrying person, have, have you ever walked into a store not like the fact that Christmas music is playing before Thanksgiving and shot out the speakers? I'm just saying, you don't do this kind of thing. Thought, thinking about it and doing it are not the same thing. But <coughs> this, is, this is what Saul does. You can see that he's slowly slipping into, uh, off the deep end. He gets uh, absolutely nutty. In fact, we know how nutty he gets because something happens uh, in, a few, uh, in a few chapters. Uh, so David has been anointed at this point. He's been anointed to be the next king, which obviously Saul doesn't like. So uh, David's been anointed. Uh, these people have started singing songs like this. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Uh, which is the equivalent of going into a football stadium and say, yes, your team has scored one touchdown and we've scored ten. Right? It doesn't make you really happy. Uh, Saul does that spear-throwing things. 
later on, Saul is informed by his head shepherd, uh, Doeg, which is another fun name if you want to just say it over and over again, Doeg, 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 the Edomite, that the high priest assisted David, giving him the sword of Goliath, which had been kept at the temple uh, at Nob. Doeg kills the high priest and 85 other priests, and Saul orders the death of the entire population of the city. I'm trying to get across the point that at this point, not only has Saul completely gone off the deep end, he's completely abandoned the Lord in everything. He is ordering the death of the high priest and the priests, and he has killed an entire city because he can't get his own way. Saul is a case study in what can happen spiritually in our lives when we ignore God and walk away from him. Saul put to death an entire city. Now, it's coming close to the end of Saul's life. The Philistines make war again, uh, assembling an army. Uh, and, and here's how no, this is how you know uh, that Saul has slipped really far before the, uh, before the battle. Instead of going and seeking the face of the Lord, he goes and seeks the face of a witch. There is a witch uh, at, the pl- at a place called Endor, uh, and he, uh, she's a spiritualist, she's a medium. She is someone who contacts the dead for money. We don't, aren't given any other details other than this in Scripture, other than really to show that she's bad and Saul has really slipped off the deep end. And so what, what's really interesting is the witch uh, uh, reminds him, she doesn't know who, who he is, he hasn't declared himself, uh, but she reminds him, hey, um, I'm actually not allowed to, to conjure the dead or speak to the dead or do any of the spiritualism or witchcraft uh, because the king has actually outlawed it and I could die. To which Saul's uh, reply is still being uh, uh, sort of incognito. He, he says, don't worry, Saul's, the king's not going to harm you. I'll see to it. A- and what Scripture tells us is that she conjures the spirit of the prophet Samuel, who at this point had died. Uh, the same Samuel who had prophesied that Saul would lose the kingdom. And at this, the witch has conjured the ghost of Samuel and Samuel is still telling Saul off. I don't care how bad a day you've had until a witch conjures the soul of someone who prophesied that you're going to lose all your power, kingdom, and authority, uh, and he's still telling you off after he's died, right? This is, this is uh, akin to uh, maybe your boss that you don't like at work passing away, and at Halloween... They come back and they're still telling you that you're driving the forklift at work wrong, right? Just let it go. Let it go at this point. God has fully rejected you. you will no, God will no longer hear your prayers. This is a, a serious statement in Scripture. We're taught that God will always hear your prayers. God will always hear your prayers. God will always hear your prayers. Samuel says, no, you're done. This is it. This is You've gone as far off as you can possibly go. Here are the consequences for your action. God's not going to hear your prayers, and tomorrow you're going to die. You're going to die in battle. You're going to lose. The kingdom's going to be split. The garment is going to be wrenched from the hands of your sons. Someone else is going to take the throne, and you're done. Saul collapses in fear, and then the medium actually restores him with food in anticipation of the next battle. Here's how Saul's life ends. 
He goes into battle, and his army gets decimated. He's fleeing in his chariot, and he tells his, his spearmen. So what would happen is in a chariot, you would have two person, a person driving, and a person with a spear who was there to defend the chariot if someone tried to attack. Right? Basic chariot racing 101. Watch Ben-Hur. It's all there. Um, wow, that was like right on two. I said Ben-Hur, and suddenly there are hunting horns announcing something. Threw me off. They're, they're leaving the battle. They're, the the They've been decimated. The army is in ruins. The, the, the chariot that's holding the king is racing in the opposite direction, and he knows that he's going to be overrun. So he actually says to his spearmen, look, kill me. I don't want to be captured. If they capture me, you don't have any idea what they're going to do to me. I need you to kill me so, they, so that I, I can't be captured. And the spearman actually says no. He says, I'm not going to kill the king because you know what will happen to me if I survive after killing the king of Israel? No, it's not going to be a good day for me or my family. And so Saul actually takes out his sword and it says in scripture that he fell on it. He commits suicide. Um, there are conflicting reports of exactly in scripture of exactly how he died. In one of the stories it says then that the Philistines came and took his body, took the bodies of all his sons who died in the battle, those, those weird names that I had read earlier, uh, and actually uh, beheaded them, put their heads on a wall, and then they actually affixed their corpses to the wall. In Judaism, you need to be able to bury the body. And so what happens is the enemies of Saul kill his entire family and instead of burying them and giving them a proper burial, displays them for everyone to see. Saul's life is a textbook example of someone who follows God in the early stages of their life, but through their own sinful nature that they give course to and allow. Uh, they allow their sinful nature to take root in their life and start ob obeying their nature rather than obeying the will of God and thinking that they know better than God rather than doing what God tells them to do. Slowly, slowly, slowly slipping down until they reach the edge of the cliff and then they fall off it completely. We use the expression, the, the slippery slope. We use it a lot without really understanding what it means. It means that when you start the descent, it's actually not that, you know, it's not something that's going to jump out and smack you in the face. I, I don't believe that most Christians, when they start to sin and slip away from God, start with murdering someone. It, it's, it's more subtle than that. Christians, when they slip away from God, they start with those little things. Man, I think I know better than God in this situation. I think my, my will is better. I think my decisions are going to be better. I think I know better. I think, I think, I think. And that I comes into it. I think. I know. I want. I, I, I. And in the book of uh, Ezekiel, which relates the, the fall of Satan from heaven, it actually uh, records that Satan says five statements, and each one starts with the phrase, I will. I will ascend into heaven. I will uh, take the throne of heaven. I will be like God over and over and over again. And what's interesting is that humans do the exact same thing. We say, no, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to make the decisions for my life. I know better than God. I'm going to become God in my life to me. And Saul, this first king of Israel, is a tragic figure the decisions that he made, the deep end that he went off at, hurling spears at poor little harpists, murdering people, 
someone who had been anointed by the prophet of God. And really what I wanted to end this sermon on is simply this. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you need to stop doing stuff. A lot of people get this sort of mentality. Uh, I became a Christian. I'm saved. Now I don't have to do anything else. I'm good. I can just hit on cruise control and I'm good until eternity. Scripture tells us that we need to guard our hearts. That doesn't change when we become a Christian. It means we actually have to guard them harder because it means more things are trying to get in and change them. It doesn't mean that you're not forgiven for the sins, but it means that there are consequences for your actions. Saul showed us what happens to a Christian when they start doing what they want to do rather than what God wants them to do. And so I'm going to pray. If you'd like to close your eyes. Here's what I want you just to, to meditate. Take a couple of seconds and meditate on. Look at your life and ask yourself if you're in the will of God or if you're out of the will of God. I'm not saying you're at the, the soul level of conjuring, you know, conjuring uh, spirits from the dead and engaging in witchcraft. And I'm, I'm not saying that you've gone right off the deep end. Maybe you're at the, the earliest stage of his life, being impatient on the will of God, not wanting to wait for his words in your life not waiting for what he wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to enter into your presence and to worship you.